0: You can collect a sample, but you have to do it from a helicopter, so you have to be quick. It took about five minutes between points, so that you couldn't stop the rotor every time, because it would take too much time to start up again. So, we were two people. We had to run out of the helicopter, pick a sample, come back while the rotor was running. You had two to three minutes or something like that.
1: Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Hollis. In this episode, we hear more from Alnida Steenfeldt, Emeritus Senior Scientist at the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about introducing a program of stream sediment sampling to surveys in East Greenland in the mid-1970s, a program that would ultimately grow to decades of work and tens of thousands of samples, covering almost the entirety of Greenland.
0: Having flown the area over two summers, we still had three summers of fieldwork in East Greenland where we could go back to the areas we found interesting where we had increased gamma activity.
1: That is increased gamma radiation detected from the aerial surveys
0: and find out where they came from or which rock types or which rock associations that produce these um, increased radiation and so we use helicopters to go back to the areas also when we had found an interesting area we would eventually um, have a field camp there and track with our hand bound instruments. We would be tracking going forth and back over an area and measuring the variations to locate where the most intensive spot was. And then we could dig at this place and find out, could, could we identify the radioactive material? And in many cases, we could. We took samples, and then of course the next step was to bring them back to the laboratory and study them the minerality and find out what kind of uraniferous mineral it could be, and from then on decide whether it was economic potential or, or not. So that was a very good learning process. But I also, when doing this work, I was thinking of another way of getting an overview of the area. And I'd always been interested in geochemistry. So I thought we should, in fact, make a geochemical survey over this area where we'd been flying. I mean, in our flights, we register radiation from uranium, thorium and potassium. But in a geochemical survey, you can actually get the response from uranium. And be sure that when you're analysing a rock for uranium,
1: and it is uranium rather than potassium or thorium, which also emit gamma radiation.
0: So, I was also inspired by Scandinavian colleagues, because in Scandinavia, and also in Russia in those days, when geochemical laboratories made a lot of progress in, in analytical methods, that you could actually um, collect systematically over an area, samples, soil, or what was deposited at the bottom of streams. And then analyze it, and then you could see the variation in the contents so of not only uranium but in all the elements that the analytical methods would provide, which meant that. Then you could study the relation between high uranium and high contents of other metals, and thereby you could find out a probable association whether uranium was part of a mineralizing system, also with copper and zinc or lead, or whether uranium was associated with a granite with a high uh, silicium or high potassium or, or high rare earth elements. In the beginning, you couldn't analyze rare earth elements, but that came in the 80s, 90s, and I started being able to do that. I mean, the principle in geochemical exploration is that when a rock weathers and is eroded by rainwater and streams, this material is taken in the stream sediment and is deposited somewhere along the course of the stream. And then you take a sample, and if you follow a stream... If you have some high values, you can take more samples upstream and eventually you can get to the spot where you are anomaly, the unusually high content where it comes from. So, it's very simple. Anyway, in East Greenland, we started up collecting material deposited at the bottom of streams, small streams. And we did this systematically and we could do that because we had sufficient amount of helicopter hours to do this. And so during 1976 and 1977, we covered a smaller area within our large survey area. And that was a very good experience. I mean, geochemical exploration hadn't been used a lot in Greenland before. There were a few local attempts uh, close to the uh, Messersweetlet zinc mine that was operated in there. 50s And so so there were some people from Aachen who had done geochemical exploration in the Ardennes. They were invited to Greenland to do some, also some small, what we called orientation surveys, where they would collect along a stream and look upon dispersals of various components along this stream by analysing samples collected with pretty good results then yeah i decided because i was in charge of that so i decided we should do that on a regional scale so i looked at the drainage pattern which was favorable to this type of exploration and chose sampling points at as regular as possible intervals where we should land and pick a sample or what was deposited in the stream and we did that we had two or three sampling teams and then we would also measure with our handheld scintillometer the radiation at the spot so that we could connect later the uh, relation between the gamma activity and the actual uranium content in the stream and we were also able to analyze for more elements which was good because then we were gradually turning uranium exploration into be used I mean the same methods for looking for other minerals and in those days the first and foremost were base metals. That means nickel, cover sink lead. And that was exciting, because you had to find out how do we do this in practice. I mean, you can collect the sample, but you have to do it from a helicopter. So you have to land and you have to be quick. It took about five minutes between points, so that you couldn't stop the rotor every time, because it would take too much time to just start up again. So, we were two people. We had to run out of the helicopter. Pick a sample. Come back while the rotor was running. Fast as possible. You had two to three minutes or something like that. Sometimes the helicopter had to land on top of a, a ravine. Uh, and then you had to slide down to the stream. Pick your sample and <laughs> climb up again. <laughs> as fast as possible. And then um, rush back to the, to into the machine. And then you have a paper bag. Of about half a kilo of the sediment. And it was paper bags because it should be allowed to dry afterwards without taking the sample out of the bag. It's not contaminated it with anything else. So what do you do with all these wet sample bags in a helicopter? So we had to create a system where you could put them in a box with holes in the bottom. So they could stand there and then the water could drip through into another box that you had and had to remember to empty now and then. And we worked out the schedule where you could do this and then have a full stop, as we called it, where the pilot would stop the engine and we were allowed to rest. For a coffee break or a lunch break or whatever, or sometimes I asked for a full stop because I wanted to look at the rocks at this particular site. I found something interesting. When we were landing on a site, we would sit with the aerial photo, or a bunch of aerial photos, because we would shift from one aerial photo to the next while flying, and uh, you had to keep track where you were. I would have a needle on my jacket we will take the needle and, and make a hole where we're taking the sample, and then write on the back side of the aerial photo the number of the sample. So that's how we did, and how that's how the mapping geologists did. They had a needle and they made a hole and wrote the locality number on the back. In those days, where everything you recorded was on some kind of paper, you really had to, to take good care of this. This was your field notes in a small book, your field maps. And your aerial photos. Yes, and we had aerial photos and maps in, in some a particulars as a hardboard thing we could carry. And it was very easy to leave it on the helicopter float, because when you had to pick up your hammer or your rock sack or something else, or your sample and store it into the passenger compartment in the helicopter, whoops, took off and, ah, my <laughs> maps! And then we were in contact with a chemist uh, who was in charge of some of the analysis. And he suggested that we should look for uranium in water. And he had, he had figured out a method whereby you could analyze uranium in water. But because the content of uranium and other metals that we would like to look for is very, very small content. And so you had to concentrate it from one liter of water. So you had to fill your sample in one liter bottles. And you can imagine, yeah, they weigh about a kilo each. It was not really practical. But we did that on one summer. Not over the entire area, but we had some test areas where we collected these one liter water bottles. And then we also had a year where we tried to store them in plastic bags. We tied a knot on a plastic bag with one liter of water in oh. them. And they had to be sent back to Denmark in wooden boxes and stacking plastic bags with water samples ends in losing water because of the pressure of the overlying bags and the, the, the squeeze water through the, even the tightest knot you can, yeah. you can tie. What's because it's cold in Greenland and you cannot tie a knot uh, so tight uh, when it's cold? Well... I mean, this is something that you uh, experience when you're working with new techniques in an area. Well, in the end, the analytical procedure had improved so much that we could analyze just 100 milliliters, also for other elements. So we turned to this geochemical sampling that we continued to do over other areas in Greenland. We could then use 100 milliliter bottles, which, of course, helped a lot. That was the start of this, and uh, we got promising results, and I was studying this, and we found out that the method worked. At first, where we had tried it out, where we knew there was some uranium in the rocks, and and that worked well, and also on a regional scale, we could see that the uranium and other elements in the stream sediments corresponded nicely to what you could expect from the rocks where the stream was draining. And we also checked seasonal variations in the uh, metal contents. We went back to a specific site and collected a sample each week. And then throughout the season, we had two months field seasons in those days, we could see how the metal content varied according to the flow of water in the beginning. There's very little flow because most of the water is tied up in ice and snow. And then the melting season starts and you get more water and so more material transported from further away. And we could follow this in the samples we collected. So there were many good experiences from working with this method. And then when we had learned enough and used the results in East Greenland, I was in charge of doing this over the rest of Greenland.
1: I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Professor Kent Brooks about close encounters with polar bears while on geological fieldwork in East Greenland.